Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. How's your holiday? Good. Awesome. Well, it's officially December 1st, right? So that means it is Christmas season. Yes, who's excited about Christmas season? Oh, come on, nobody's excited. Is it because Waterford gets packed and it becomes hard to drive? Um, well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, Doug is out this week, and so he has allowed me um, to come and preach, and so I'm really thankful for that opportunity. I'm thankful for the trust that he shows in that. Um, but I'm also thankful for you for coming, <laughs> still. Um, but last year, I just want to bring up the Christmas season, because last year for Christmas, uh, we looked at the birth of Christ. And we looked at the hope that it brings into our lives. And so we looked at the beginning of the Matthew, the book of Matthew, and we spent time looking at the cradle of Jesus and the impact it would have on humanity and how it was the fulfillment of everything God had promised. And we started out in a sermon series um, called The Light Has Come because uh, it was represented how God was providing for the Jewish nation and also for us. But since Christmas, we've been walking through the book of Matthew kind of journeying along with the life of Jesus. And so we've seen that Jesus came with a purpose. And we went through a series called Getting the Story Straight, where Jesus came and he set the story straight, clarifying what it means to truly love God and to live a life for the kingdom. During that sermon series, um, we learned that living a life for kingdom is living, living a life of self-abandonment. Um, and then we went through a sermon series called Actions Speak Louder Than Words, where we saw through Jesus' eyes the compassion he had on people and how true compassion leads to action. And, then, um, and so we followed Jesus as he met the needs of people, both physically and spiritually, and we followed him as he began to teach about the unsolved mysteries of the kingdom. We talked about things such as suffering. Um, we saw how through parables and stories, Jesus brought clarity um, about things such as baptism, the resurrection, and the mark of a true believer. And after that, we looked some, at some of the defining moments in Jesus' life and the life of his disciples. Um, and we talked about how we all have defining moments in our lives as well. But it's not those moments or the circumstances that define us, but our responses to those moments that define us. And then we examined some of the teachings of Jesus and looked how grace conflicts with culture. In a culture where everything says, you must earn it, you have to work for it to have it. Jesus says, no, my grace is freely given. I mean, so we looked at how those two things clashed, and we journeyed along further in Matthew, where we read everything that Jesus had to say to his disciples about the end game, the times that would mark his return. And finally, we came to what was the final week of Jesus' life, um, where he begins to challenge the disciples to decide who he is to come to a decision or a verdict on who he is, to them and to us. And so today we're going to begin a series called Cradle to the Cross, because everything, every miracle, every teaching, every moment led to something, right? Every one of those things led to these final moments of his life leading to the cross. And so today we're going to be looking at the last few hours of Jesus' life, and we're going to see that there are four things that describe and mark um, the end of Jesus' life. And if you have your scripture this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 27. and we'll be starting in verse 1. Um, and it says this. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. 
And then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought within the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them the potter's field as the Lord directed them. And so this is a moment in Jesus' in Jesus's final moments that is marked by betrayal. And I know we've, we've covered the section of Scripture where Judas betrayed Jesus, but this is the first time we see Judas called the betrayer. And that's a heavy name to carry. That's something he would carry for the rest of his life. And even until today, that's how we know him. We know him as the betrayer. One of the 12 men, I, was, I just want us to get our minds around this, one of the 12 men that followed Jesus throughout his ministry, one of the 12 men who walked with him, one of the 12 men who saw him perform miracles, a person that sat under his teachings, right, is somebody who betrayed him. But when Judas saw what was to happen to Jesus, when he realized that he, Jesus was condemned, he tried to right what he had wronged, and he went back to the temple and tried to return the silver. But there was no forgiveness to be had there. But it was too late. Judas had already made his decision. And now there was no way back. And so I think some of us are like Judas today. We've been around the things of God. We've walked with Jesus. We've seen him work and do miraculous things right before our eyes. But we've sold him out. And what I mean for that, and what Doug defined a few weeks ago, was that we've deserted him for something that benefits us. And so maybe you deserted him because something came up at work, and it wouldn't help you climb the ladder if you were a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've betrayed him because it was causing discord with non-believers in your family. Maybe you betrayed him because the life he called you to live wasn't going well with your friends. But this kind of betrayal was one of the things that marked Jesus' final hours. And so, as we move forward in the scripture, we see that Jesus is taken to stand before Pilate, and he's tried, but by the end of his trial, Pilate is amazed. And although Pilate is a government official and not a religious figure in the time, because of the way that the current government worked alongside um, the religious officials, he was allowed to release a prisoner during the religious Pentecost festival that was going on. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story in verse 15. It says this, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, so Pilate. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, when they had gathered Pilate said to them, Who do you want to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent, um, sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Verse 20, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. 
The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, um, Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So now we see Pilate lead Jesus in front of everybody. And Pilate presents to everyone two options, right? He says, you can release Jesus, the person who's healed many, the person who has done signs and wonders, the person who's forgiven your sins, or you can release Barabbas, who is a notorious criminal, a known criminal. And he says, who do you want released? And I can imagine Pilate, right, probably thinking, oh, well, they're going to choose Jesus, right? But then the Pharisees begin to whisper amongst the crowd, walking in and out, telling, him, telling them to choose Barabbas, whispering to the crowd that Jesus isn't who they thought he was, that instead of coming to deliver them from Rome, he's been subjected to them. He's a prisoner of the government. So they begin to shout for Barabbas to be released. And Pilate, confused, again asks, who do you want me to release? And the crowd grows louder, yelling, Barabbas. And Pilate asks them what they want them to do with Jesus, and they begin to yell, crucify him. And Pilate, knowing how terrible of a death crucifixion is, says, what has this man done? What has he done? And even louder, they yell, crucify him. And so another thing that marks Jesus' final hours is rejection. Rejection from his own people. From his own people that only a few days ago called him Lord and celebrated him as he entered the city of Jerusalem. These are the same people that shouted and flooded the streets yelling, Hosanna on the highest. The very people that didn't let the foot of the donkey he was riding on touch the ground. But now they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So this is the ultimate example of rejection. The very people that celebrated him wanted to kill him. And why? Because Jesus wasn't doing what they thought Jesus should do. And I think if we're honest today, that's a lot, a lot of us sit in that same spot. Many of us, maybe not with our complete lives, but in moments of our lives, have rejected Jesus or been mad at Jesus because of the way we thought he should handle the situation. And the cry of our own hearts goes from Hosanna in the highest to crucify him. And just like the Pharisees walked around the people and whispered lies into their ears, the enemy is walking around us, whispering in our ears, persuading us like the Pharisees persuaded the Israelites, saying, he isn't faithful. He didn't answer your prayer. You wanted healing, but he hasn't given it to you. You're struggling, right? God said you make your burden light. So he must not be who he, thought, who he says he is or who you thought he is, who you thought he was. And so instead of listening to what he's said to us, and instead of believing what we've seen him do, we reject him. We begin to think that Jesus isn't fully capable of what we thought. That Jesus isn't who we think he is or who he says he is. And so the crowd makes a decision. They choose Barabbas. And Jesus is released and handed over to the soldiers. And this is what happens Starting in verse 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. 
And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So another thing that we see that marks the final hours of Jesus is humiliation. In the dictionary, humiliate means to make someone feel ashamed or foolish by injuring their dignity and self-respect, especially publicly. And this is exactly what the soldiers were doing. That's what they sought to do. They made fun of what Jesus called himself. They made fun of who the people called him. They made fun calling him king of the Jews and putting a crown of thorns on his head. Making fun of his weakness. Making fun of his humanity. Spitting on him. Trying to make him feel worthless. And maybe we don't do this in our lives by literally spitting on Jesus or spitting on his name. But I think sometimes we humiliate the name of Jesus when we claim to be for him and we claim him and we proclaim his name and we say we live for him, but then we go and we don't. When we don't, when we rep the name of Jesus, but we don't walk for the name of Jesus. When we don't live a life how he calls us to live. And we humiliate his name that way. And one last thing, Mark Jesus' final hours. Abandonment. In all this chapter and, and all these little sections we've read from this chapter, there's no mention of the disciples except for Judas. I mean, from other Gospels, we learn that John was there for his crucifixion. But where are the other disciples? Where are the other ten guys that followed him for his life? These are the hardest moments in Jesus' life, and he stands alone. He's abandoned and only one of his disciples were there. The people who have followed him through thick and thin are not even in sight. And when it got hard, they split. And so I think some of that rings true for us this morning. Like the disciples, we've abandoned Jesus. We left him because he went somewhere that was hard to follow. We were all in, and we were all for him when it was good for us and relatively easy. But when the difficult times came, we had to believe what we preached. We had to believe what he preached, and we abandoned him. So there's these four things. There's betrayal, rejection, humiliation, and abandonment. They're all terrible and difficult, but they were necessary. They were necessary for Jesus to endure in his final moments because they all led to one place. They led to the cross. They all led to this moment where the greatest thing in all of creation, the creator himself, was dead on a tree. But because of these moments, and because of where they led, redemption would follow. You see, Judas sought, for, sought restitution for his betrayal by going back to the temple. But because of the cross, those of us who have betrayed Jesus or sold him out for something that benefits us, we don't need to go to a temple to seek forgiveness. Instead, there's a way back from betrayal. And because of where rejection led Jesus, the rejection that he endured, there's a grace um, where the very person that we rejected will give us acceptance. And because of the humiliation that Jesus faced, we can find comfort in persecution and find our worth in him. And because of the abandonment of Jesus, we'll never be abandoned again.
And so it's we need to see that all these things are necessary because they led to a place and to a moment that created reconciliation for anything you have ever or will ever say, do, or think. Reconciliation for every sin and every person. And how beautiful is the overall story that God is painting here, that, he, that God is creating, that everything in Jesus' life from the cradle to the cross had purpose and intention. Every moment led to our salvation. And so today, maybe you find yourself in one of those four places. Maybe it's the first time that, <coughs> excuse me, you understand the grace that God has extended to us. I want to say I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask some of the deacons to stand up here. If you want somebody to talk to or somebody to pray with, I mean, the altar is open. Come talk to God. Come pray to God. Come talk to our deacons. Um, so we go ahead and pray for us. Father, thank you so much for who you are, for the plan that you've been creating since the beginning. Thank you that because of the betrayal, the humiliation, the abandonment, and the rejection that Jesus faced, we can find reconciliation in you. That there's a way for us to come to you when before there wasn't. So Father, I pray as we go into this time of worship that your spirit move. Lord, please, thank you for all that you've done, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.